many ways we have come then to the climax of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26. If you're using the Bibles in the benches, that's page 1641. Way back in chapter 9, Jesus had set his face like flint. Luke had told us to go to the city of Jerusalem to meet his death. This is God's word. As they led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene who was on his way from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them Daughters of Jerusalem do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children for the time will come when you will say Blessed are the barren women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. 
Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and an upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, a man left his home early one afternoon to go for a walk, to get some air, and to clear his head. He felt like his conscience was going to eat him alive. His conscience gnawed at him. It gnawed at his very soul. He had tried to escape this sensation for many years, but he couldn't any longer. He thought back to when he was a child, and he was a pretty good kid altogether. Of course, he couldn't get out of his head the little lies and the cheating and the stealing and some of the even darker moments which he had done, which everybody does. He thought back to his years as a teenager, and really he was a typical teenager, but he could never get out of his head the sins of his youth. He could never get out of his head his self-centered pursuit of being seen as cool at the expense of others. Couldn't get out of his head the lustful thoughts. You know, all the sins of youth that he had been told for so many years was just common to everyone and so it was okay, but his conscience would not let him get away with it and he kept being reminded it was eating at his very soul. Now he had grown and he was a family man and though he was clean on the outside and everybody would have looked at this man and said that he was a good man, he knew, he knew that even now his pride and his bitterness and his racism and his lusts and his love of money and his love of pleasure would make him absolutely miserable if it didn't kill him. And he was at a crossroads. You see, this man, and this is any man, was plagued with guilt and with shame. Guilt and shame because of the past and because of the present. And he had to go somewhere with it. Everybody has to go somewhere with it. When you strip off all of the self-sufficiency, supposedly, And you strip off all of the layers of pretense and all of the false layers of outward stability. Then what happens? You expose, you expose in the heart and soul of every man, woman, and child that has ever lived one of the most devastating consequences of belonging to the fallen human race, which is what? The nagging presence of guilt and shame for who we are and what we have done. And you have that. And I have that. If you don't have it, you should have it. And when you have it, 
all kinds of people go different places with it. They go to addictions, to narcotics, or too much alcohol, or too much food, or sexual immorality, or even self-inflicted pain. They go to denial of their own sins and faults and failures. And they sear their consciences as with a hot iron, the scripture says. They go to entertainment, right? And they compulsively lose themselves in the fantasies of books or television or movies or gambling to distract themselves from themselves and from the nagging guilty conscience and the shame. They go on the war path against others in the name of some cause while all they're doing is projecting their insecurities on other people. They go to become workaholics to distract themselves from themselves. They go to religion. Yes, even popular forms of so-called Christianity which is not more than superstition or entertainment or going to get an emotional uplift to mask the guilt and the shame that nags us and the frustration of living in the fallen world. They go to get quaint tips for practical living so that they can obey those laws while ignoring the fact that they have rejected the true and the deep and the hard and the holy law of God. And the list goes on. The list goes on of how people, when their guilt and their shame is gnawing at their souls, how they deal with it and where they go. But in verse 40 of Luke 23, we are introduced to a man who went to the right place with his guilt and shame. And he is characterized by four things. First of all, he acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged his sin. This is the man in verse 41 who says, We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Now this is a simple truth. And simple direction from the Lord to each of us this morning on how to deal with our guilt and shame. Whether it's from the past or the present or not happy looking toward the future and seeing your failures in the past and where it may lead you. But very simply, the character of the man that did well with his guilt and shame in the first place acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged his sin. And I hope that it hasn't become so commonplace to you that you don't understand the radical, miraculous nature of anybody really taking into account that they are sinful. I mean, how is it that someone actually comes to be convinced not just of some abstract religious truths or the facts of the Bible or the truth of Jesus Christ that He's the true God and others are idols, but actually comes to a conviction that they are sinful and that it's their fault and not everybody else's. This man had to be brought to the ultimate sentence in life for undoubtedly a gross sin. The kind of sin that somebody like Barabbas who was released as we saw last week could have been convicted of. Perhaps it was a murder. 
perhaps some other kind of violent crime, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. Where do you go with your guilt and your shame? Every time that you sense it and it gnaws at your soul, the first thing to do is acknowledge that you are sinful. Because immediately what we do is try to suppress the idea of sin because it doesn't feel good. We try to tell other people that they are the responsible party for why we have found ourselves in the mess that we are in. It is the way that I was raised. It is just true that everybody else is the same way, so it's not that bad. All of that is a lie and a distraction from the fact of our own sin, and we are responsible for our own sin. All of the psychologists who do not have a Christian worldview to be sure there are many Christian psychologists but those psychologists who do not have a Christian worldview try to treat guilt and shame like it's a symptom of some physical disease and in some cases it may be Right, some people with chemical imbalances will have difficulty in their personalities. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the guilt and the shame that every man, woman, and child, when those layers of things are stripped away, has to face. They don't talk about sin. Talk about giving treatment or drugging somebody to get rid of the root cause. The root cause is sin and we've got to acknowledge it. Don't put ourselves up on some scale against other people and supposedly measure up. Make ourselves feel like we're better than we really are. No. We acknowledge our sin as those who wrestle with guilt and shame. Secondly, this man acknowledges that the worst thing about his sin is not that he finds himself suffering from the consequences of his own sin, but that he has offended God and he will face that judge who is owed perfect obedience by him. Look at verse 40. The context here is that the other criminal, you saw that in verse 39, he's yelling at Jesus, aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and us. What is he doing to Jesus? He is demanding that Jesus exercise his power to help him. So he is not confessing his sin, right? And then how does the criminal respond, the one that we're interested in. He says, don't you, he rebukes the man and says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? And then he looks, of course, at Jesus, we'll speak a little more about this. This man has done nothing wrong. You know, it's something about seeing the innocent man, Jesus, die that caused this criminal to recognize that his sin, the worst part about it wasn't that he was dying on the cross in punishment. He deserved that. The worst part of his sin was acknowledging that he owed to God who had made him an account. The worst part about our sin is that we have offended God. It's not that we haven't made a mess of ourselves. And sometimes we suffer under the consequences of other people's sins against us, don't we? And so some people will use that as the excuse to get around their sin. And they will play the victim all the time instead of remembering that our problem, it's, it's our fault, number one. And the worst part about our fault is that we have offended God. 
You'll go to some churches today that certainly will preach about sin, but they will talk about sin in terms of how it will mess up your life only. Right? And they will talk about Jesus as the one who has come to undo the mess that you have made of yourselves. And in some senses, that is true. But it is not the most important reason why Jesus came. He came to reconcile us to the God whom we had offended. And that is the worst part about our sin. That we, in response to the benevolent God, the God who has been so good and kind to us as a human race, who has created us in all of this beauty and splendor, and has even been patient with us after the fall of our first father Adam for all of these thousands of years we have sinned against him and have offended him in his own universe that is the worst part about our sin and this man acknowledged it some people turn Jesus going into the cross as a very sappy thing, as if Jesus was going to the cross and was all smiles in his kindness toward those who had offended him. Well, to be sure, he is very kind in going to the cross for us, his people. But think about what he tells the women who are following him in verse 20. How does he want them to think about the cross? He says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. The time is coming. When you will say, blessed are those who never had children in the... Blessed are those who never nursed their children. They'll say to the fall, to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Why? What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about God unleashing his judgment on the nation of Jerusalem for the height of their apostasy in rejecting Christ himself. And we've talked about this before. He wants them to think about the war that is coming on the city on the city of Jerusalem by the Roman armies, in which the children of the women to whom he's speaking are going to be fighting on behalf of Israel, and they will be absolutely destroyed and crushed. He says, I want you to think about that. Why? Because I delight in the judgment that's coming on you? No. I want you to think about that because that is a picture of fallen humanity and what they all deserve for violating the will of God and for rebelling against the Father who made them. We've talked about the whole reason why God the Father set up this nation of Israel and gave them laws and said, if you obey me, you will be blessed. But if you disobey me, you will be cursed. And why would God give that law to a sinful people, knowing that they would sin and then be cut off in the destruction of Jerusalem here that Jesus is talking about? He did that to remind all of us that the worst thing about our sin is that we have offended the Father. And He is a just and vengeful God. Got verse 31. He gives this, again, cryptic saying, If men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What He's saying is this. If I am being crucified and I am innocent, imagine what will happen to those who are found guilty. Take stock of the vengeance of God when you acknowledge your own sin that the worst part about it is that it has offended God and He will respond. The third thing about this man is that 
in the face of his own guilt and shame, he acknowledged the innocence, the perfect holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 41, This man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. And verse 47, the centurion after he was dead, gives witness, reflects the same idea. And he says, surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was the righteous man. Surely this is the man that the Psalms talk about. The blessed righteous man who walks in the way of the Lord and who forsakes all evil. The righteous man who was obedient. The righteous man who did not, like the first representative, Adam, did not sin against God. The righteous man who came into the world and who suffered under all kinds of temptations, yes, even the kinds of temptations that you and I face today, that we sin and then are plunged into our guilt and shame, he faced all of that and he resisted. And it's even hard to imagine how somebody could be so pure in his thoughts and his words and his actions. And yes, this is him. Surely this was a righteous man. The criminal acknowledged that this man had done nothing wrong and he was put to death. I haven't been able to get it out of my mind for about five years, but on The Simpsons, One time, Homer got hold of a Bible and finally started reading it and he was flipping through and he got frustrated because he said, I see everybody's a sinner except this guy when he got to the New Testament. And it was funny. But it's so exactly true that Jesus had never done anything wrong, that surely He is the righteous man and the criminal brought to the cross acknowledged it. He acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged the worst thing about his sin was that it offended God, not that it made a mess of his own life, not that it made him feel bad, but that God was offended. And he acknowledged that Jesus was innocent and last, he acknowledged that Jesus had the power and the willingness to forgive him of his sin. Now this is contrary to everything that is supposed to be true. I mean it is supposed to be if the criminal acknowledges his sin and acknowledges that the worst thing about his sin is that he has offended a holy God and that the holy God's vengeance is due to him and that on top of that the holy God comes as the God-man and is perfectly innocent and righteous in every way, and is hanging there with him, what should follow from that is that Jesus will unleash his vengeance against this criminal. But we don't believe that, because that's not the truth. That's not the character of Jesus Christ. And if you are plagued with guilt and shame, here is the answer. Jesus has the power and He has the willingness to forgive you of your sins. Right, how is Jesus conducting Himself as He goes to the cross? We saw it last week. We're not going to repeat all of it. But how did Jesus respond when these rogue, oppressive kings raised their authority against Jesus, the true King? Did He respond? 
No. He did not respond. He submitted himself to their unjust accusations and condemnations, to their whims and selfish pleasures. How does Jesus respond in this story? In the face of utter, disgusting idolatry and hatred, they said in verse 35, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. People are saying, I don't care that I saw him raise people out of the grave. If he's really the Christ, then let him save himself. I don't care that he came to men, women, and children who were lepers and who were disgusting and despised by the community. He walked up to them and touched them and immediately they were cleansed. I don't care. If he saved others, let him save himself. Leading him in a procession of shame. Verse 34, the soldiers only really caring about dividing up his clothes. Amazing. Mocking him in verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Putting a sign above him reading, This is the king of the Jews. Hurling insults at him. And what does he do? Does the God who sees their sin, does the God who realizes that their sin and the worst part about it is that they are offending him, does the God who is innocent immediately destroy them? No. No. Verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly if those words were on the lips of Jesus or not, came into the textual tradition of the Scripture later. Probably. Uh, But certainly that countenance of Jesus is all throughout this passage. That He is clearly holding Himself back for the care and compassion of those who are around Him. He is silent, like a sheep going to slaughter, isn't he? He goes to die, and he is buried by this man Joseph, a member of the council who was a good and upright man, not consenting to their decision. He goes to burial. Why? To show us that he really died. He did not decide to call the angels down from heaven to release him. He actually died. At the time of his death, what happened? The sun stopped shining. The sun stopped shining because the displeasure of God against the sin of His people was being poured out Not on His people, but on Jesus. And the whole cosmos, the whole creation responded with such a horrific vengeance. Such an intense punishment. Such horrific wrath by going dark.
curtain of the temple in Israel is torn in two because God is beginning to show Israel that they have committed their ultimate apostasy. Couldn't get any worse. He acknowledged that Jesus had the power and willingness to forgive him of his sin. You see, because Jesus looks at your guilt and your shame, he stares it right in the face and he goes to the cross. He bears in his body and soul the vengeance of God against you. The righteous for the unrighteous. Is this your prayer? Verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then that's also your answer. In verse 43, He says to you, I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. The guilt and the shame of the fallen human race eats us alive. But if we will face it and acknowledge our sin and acknowledge that the worst part of our sin is that we have offended the Holy God, if we will acknowledge the innocence of Jesus and we will acknowledge that He has the power and the willingness to forgive us of our sins and we ask Him, Lord, have mercy on me, remember me when you come into your kingdom, He tells you this morning again, you will be with me in paradise Peace to you. Peace and grace and love and compassion and mercy. And when your own conscience accuses you, be at rest because Jesus does not accuse you. He loves you and forgives you through His horrific death on the cross for your sins. We may be ashamed But Jesus is not ashamed of us. He says to the Father, I will declare your name, O Father, to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Hebrews 2. Again, Jesus says, I will put my trust in the Lord. And He says, Here I am. And the children that God has given me, with all of our failures and struggles and shame and guilt, He clothes us in His innocence and His holiness. In His blood, He covers our sins. And He brings us to the Father. Here I am, O Lord. And here they are with me, yours. Since the children had flesh and blood, He shared in their humanity so that by His death, He destroys the one who holds the power of death and frees us who all our lives were held in slavery by our fear of death and judgment. For surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but it is Abraham's descendants, that's us, all who have true faith in Him. For this reason He had to be made like us in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people because he himself suffered when he was tempted he's able to help those who are being tempted if you're that man who is plagued by sin and shame and guilt flee to Christ and if you know people who are plagued by 
sin and shame and guilt cause them to flee to Christ too. He is a merciful and compassionate Savior and we have all of our life and all of our forgiveness and all of our acceptance and all of our glory in Him. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he might be proclaimed in our midst. And we thank you that all of our life is found in him. We thank you that in spite of ourselves, you sent him to die for us. And that we belong to him. We are unworthy. We could never make ourselves worthy of that sacrifice. But we pray, O Lord, that you will then strengthen us for thankful obedience to live in light of the cross, to set aside the shame which Jesus despised and put to death as he suffered for us. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. For we pray in his name alone. Amen.